It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. A new investigation from the Washington Post finds that electric vehicle companies have extensive connections to companies in China accused of forced labor and other abuses. Several EV manufacturers, including Tesla, Ford, and Volkswagen, have suppliers with connections to Chinese Xinjiang province. Forced labor is so common in that province that the U.S. enacted a federal ban on products made there because it's virtually impossible to tease out which products from the region use forced labor. The U.S. has accused Beijing of committing genocide in the region against Uyghur Muslims and ethnic minority with a large population in Xinjiang. Our next guest led that investigation for the Washington Post. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think electric car makers can or should do things differently? Should companies be held responsible for the things that happen in their supply chains? Should the U.S. government do more to crack down? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Evan Halper is a business reporter for The Washington Post covering the energy transition. Evan, welcome to Central Time. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we dig into Xinjiang province, I want to talk about uh, why we're talking about this industry and talking about it now. A lot of industries over the years have had troubled supply chains. You quote somebody, a lawyer uh, and supply chain management expert called Duncan Jepson. I want to quote this. We know from every other industry that there is that if we don't fix this now, in the early days of this transition... It'll be a massive mistake. Can you talk about what's at stake here in this growing industry? Yeah, I mean, the auto industry right now is at a real inflection point. I mean, we're moving from the internal combustion engine, obviously, to electric vehicles. Um, you know, it's a, a big, major industrial transition, one of the, one of the biggest, um, you know, probably in history. And it, it involves many thousands of companies, millions of people, um, and, you know, a lot of investment. And right now, these supply chains are heavily rooted in China um, and, and probably will be for some time. But a lot of those suppliers are now doing business in Xinjiang. Um, you know, Xinjiang is a place where um, there's, there, there's so much forced labor going on or so much has been documented um, that the United States passed this uh you know, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which basically says any product that comes out of Xinjiang is presumed to be made with forced labor unless uh, the, you know, the seller of it can prove otherwise. And proving otherwise is nearly impossible because the Chinese government uh, has these anti-sanctions laws that makes it impossible for investigators, whether they're corporate investigators, uh, you know, or they're human rights investigators to get in and find out what is really happening there. And so, you know, we're at this place where it's illegal to bring these parts in, um, but a lot of companies are in a position where it's hard to find suppliers for some parts that that are are not connected to this area. Evan, can you paint us a picture of this uh, forced labor in China, in Xinjiang province, what it looks like as part of this wider uh, relocation, re-education effort? There's a lot tied up here. What does it mean for the people uh, at the center of this story? So it's it's largely targeted at Muslim ethnic minorities, particularly uh, the Uyghur minority. And you know, in China, they'll call them anti-terrorism laws, and and they'll say, you know, this is this is about uh, stopping terrorism, and giving people jobs, and you know, creating, uh, you know, eliminating poverty and creating employment. But in the course of the way that they've implemented these, you know, so-called poverty alleviation and surplus labor programs, 
you know, there there have been hundreds, actually literally millions of people um, moved from their homes. You know, there have been documented uh, cases of, uh, you know, just, just hundreds of thousands of people put in internment camps um, at the peak of the repression, which would have been right before the pandemic. Um, since then, the, the Chinese government has said, well, a lot of our objectives have been met in, in kind of uh, sort of stopping the extremism and we're going to close a lot of these uh, detention centers. And so some of the internment camps have emptied out. But at the same time, this issue of surplus labor and moving people, um, you know, there's quotas and involve moving like literally millions of people from rural villages to these factory towns. And it's often coursed. Um, you know, the the investigators say that if, uh, you know, you refuse the assignment, you could wind up being sent to prison. Um, you're, you're expected to comply with these orders when, you know, there's a lot of documented cases. When you get to your assigned town, you go through this kind of indoctrination training. Um, you know, it can be months long where you need to learn, you know, the Chinese language. Um, you know, there's military training, um, you know, there's, there's, there can be restrictions on whether you're allowed to see a Quran and what religion you can practice. And so it's a, and there's a high level of surveillance um, going on. And so it's a very kind of repressive environment to be in. The United Nations is recently, you know, a, a UN committee as recently as March um, said they looked at the vocational centers there and they often operate more like, um uh, prisons, you know, places where where people are deprived of liberty. And in 2022, the UN went to uh, did the Human Rights Office did a, did a big report on on Xinjiang, and uh, said that there was evidence of crimes against humanity taking place there. The US, of course, says that what's happening there is a genocide. Talking to Evan Halper from the Washington Post about his investigation into the supply chain in electric vehicles. So much of that chain moving through this Xinjiang province in China. Here in the U.S., we're not supposed to get products from that pro- that uh, province because of the forced labor situation. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your reactions, your questions. That's 800-642-1234. Evan, the heart of your reporting on this is the idea that you know some of the automakers are saying, we're trying not to get products made with forced labor. Uh, we're avoiding countries direct or companies, excuse me, directly named as providers. It's really hard to figure this out. You worked with a couple watchdog groups who found it not that hard to find evidence that, in fact, uh, American automakers were getting products from this province and probably from forced labor. What did you find? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's really what drove uh, our story here was the idea that some of these small NGOs, um, which are really just kind of a few people with some laptops, can turn up evidence uh, to show that, okay, you know, this component was made with materials that seem very clearly linked to Xinjiang and, you know, made their way into a Tesla or made their way into a Ford. Um, you know, at the same time, these companies are saying we have these, um, you know, strict policies. We do not allow any forced labor. We have no tolerance for it. Um, you know that we monitor our supply chains, and so we were trying to understand this disconnect. And when we looked at these supply chains and the way these companies are monitoring them, you know, what we found is if you look at like a, a supply chain for a, you know, a, a lithium-ion battery, it could have thirteen thousand companies in it. And there's different tiers, you know, these, you know, the, the, the tier one supplier uh, supplies directly to the company, but then they have their own suppliers that get them, uh, you know, the materials they need to make whatever they're selling to the company. And what we were finding is that the companies are, you know, they, they, they enforce these ethics codes on their tier one suppliers. 
and then they expect the tier one suppliers to uh, enforce them down the supply chain. And it, so instead of the companies actually looking at all the all of the suppliers that are involved in their supply chains, which sounds complicated and the companies say they are, but the more we dug into this, the more we realized there's actually lots of technology out there and lots of methods you could use uh, to look, to find, you know, where your suppliers are coming from, um, what they're doing, who they're doing business with. Um, but often the auto companies are not choosing to go that route. And instead what they're doing is they're just sort of taking it on, uh, taking the word of the tier one supplier that they're enforcing these things. And what the tier one supplier is doing is they're just sending questionnaires to all the suppliers down the line. And as one of the investigators we talked to said, you know, the questionnaires, she called them hilarious. Like uh, they'll ask a, you know, supplier down the supply chain, are you using forced labor or using child labor? You know, and of course they'll say no. So, um, you know, this these findings had prompted the Senate Finance Committee to open its own investigation. And, you know, they're finding much the same, that, that these companies are just sort of imposing their ethics codes on these tier one suppliers, um, but not looking nearly hard enough down the supply chain. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Marcus is with us in Milwaukee. Marcus, hi. Good afternoon, Rob. So I would say to everyone listening um, that we should consider going back to something. I think we'd be well served to go back to what we did in the 80s, where it was we buy American, we bring back American jobs, we'll improve an American economy. And then at the same time, we'll also be voting with our dollars that we do not accept this kind of treatment of people. We're not going to accept this kind of treatment down the line. And so that way it's controlled. And as Americans, we're smart enough to, we need to figure this out. We can do this. We so can. Marcus, thanks a lot for the call. There are White House efforts to start uh, moving that supply chain to other countries and some of it here in the United States. Evan, but reading your piece, it's clear for so much of this, not just battery production, but you know, cobalt processing, uh, nickel processing, other components here. So much of it, China has a huge head start, a lot of it concentrated in this Xinjiang province. Yeah, and I should say the efforts to to uh, onshore a lot of this production, they're not trivial. I mean, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act passed last year, and it's, you know, we're talking many billions of dollars that, uh, you know, will be investing, the U.S. government will be investing, and taxpayers will be investing in, um, you know, trying to move these these plants over to the United States. But the the time it takes to ramp up production um and the you know the scale of what needs to be done um even that that major legislation that passed is is kind of a drop in the bucket i mean to get a mine open in the us um it can take 5 to 10 years a lot of these mining operations are already you know underway in in china and in xinjiang you know in in particular a lot of the processing is already happening there you know the 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 facilities the infrastructure is already set up and, um, you know, something like three quarters of the lithium ion batteries are being made in China right now. So, yes, some of that can be moved away from that country. And there's there's big efforts by uh, the Biden administration in Congress, Republicans also to move that production away from China. Um, but the other thing that's going on is that these car makers, I mean, like we looked at Tesla in particular, but, you know, it also applies to Volkswagen and it also applies to other companies. They've staked their future on sales in China. China's way ahead of uh, other countries in adoption of EVs right now. So if you want to sell EVs, it's, you know, it's a huge market just because China's a huge place. Um, but they're also something like 40 to 50 percent of the cars they're selling right now are EVs. It's a much lower percentage in the U.S. and 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 much of Europe. 
And so these companies are uh, concerned about rocking the boat. Tesla sells, you know, 40% of its vehicles in China, does a lot of production production in China. And, um, you know, they'll ask a lot of questions publicly about uh, things that potentially violate human rights in other parts of their supply chain, other parts of the world. But China is very sensitive for them because they're also concerned about losing access to that market. We're talking to Washington Post business reporter Evan Halper about his investigation of electric vehicle companies' connections to forced labor, particularly in the Xinjiang region of China. You can join in at 800-642-1234. As electric vehicles become more and more widespread, what do you want to see companies do about ethical issues in the industry, including the use of forced labor in China? Do you want or expect electric car companies to source as ethically as possible? Join in with your thoughts, your questions for our guest about his investigation at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up the conversation with Washington Post business reporter Evan Halper about his reporting on electric car manufacturers' connections to forced labor in a region of China where the U.S. has accused the country of conducting a genocide against Uyghur Muslims. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions about uh, this reporting, your reactions, 800-642-1234. Back to your calls now. Ernest is with us in Hayward. Ernest, hello. Hello. Slavery is definitely bad, but I wonder if that isn't being thrown out partially to conceal the fact that American car companies don't want to or cannot compete with China with electric vehicles. There is a way to make American car companies more competitive, and it's known as the free market. Why tax profits when you can tax carbon and other natural resource inputs? Let's go with our strength, which is the free market, but don't hamper the free market by taxing economic effort. Ernest, uh, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Evan, uh, can the U.S. Uh, automakers compete, or and battery manufacturers for that matter, compete uh, with China, I think is at the core of Ernest's question. Yeah, I mean, you know, his point about um, about the way the market works, it, you know, it is it is fair to point out that the reason China has such a jump on this is because they have so heavily subsidized these industries. I mean, you know, we saw this with the solar industry also. They have spent, you know, many billions of dollars giving these industries a jump and trying to sort of corner the market. And in many ways, what's happening with the EV market is we already saw happen with the solar panel market where uh, we were comfortable for a while just buying these products from China, um, you know, letting their subsidies bring down the cost of some of these products. And but then, you know, things have changed. Relations between the companies have chilled and, you know, there it became almost a national security threat that China has so much control of the solar market. Um, you know, which is where the energy industry is going. And now with China having so much control of the EV market and, you know, they use a lot of subsidies to get there. And so that's sort of the thinking of policymakers in the U.S. that, uh, you know, we needed to kick in some subsidies also to help American companies compete and not let China have full control, uh, you know, of EV production. Thanks for that call. Getting back to Xinjiang province, Evan, and this U.S., uh, ruling that, hey, we you can't uh, bring products into America made with stuff from that province. Clearly, it seems like it's happening. Things from there are ending up over here in consumer products, including electric vehicles. What are we hearing from uh, whoever in the U.S. government would enforce that? 
So it would be the Customs and Border Patrol that would actually enforce that. And, uh, you know, they have seized, I was just talking about the solar panel market, uh, you know, I think 1,500 shipments last year of solar panels that largely on suspicion of forced labor. Whether they are going to do the same um, with these products, we will see. It's it's not easy work. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, even though these NGOs, like I mentioned, you know, a few laptops and, and they were able to find these ties, uh, you know, the, the Customs and Border Patrol has its hands full with a lot of, you know, we've got a lot of sanctions going on in this country right now. And there's also pressure from uh, the corporations for them not to uh, too aggressively enforce the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. But what we're also seeing is a lot of pressure from Congress on the other side saying, you know, we passed this act for a reason. Biden administration, you need to start enforcing it much more aggressively. We're seeing all kinds of violations happen. It's not that hard to find the violations. And, you know, there's so there's pressure from the Hill being put on the Biden administration to actually enforce the law that was passed. Whether the resources are put there, we will see a lot of experts I talked to said that these auto companies are in a tough spot and they need to they may be facing a reckoning similar to what the solar industry faced in the last couple of years. Evan, for both of those, the solar industry, electric vehicles, these are both things that are are key to meeting commitments uh, for preventing or turning around climate change here in the U.S. A lot of efforts to make that happen. Uh, But those solar panel confiscations you mentioned, they've slowed down some solar farms here in Wisconsin. I know there's maybe an unresolvable conflict between the effort to electrify and get alternative sources of energy and then the reality that as of right now, this year, a lot of those products only are coming from China. Yeah, it's a huge tension point. I mean, I did cover the the solar side of this pretty um, thoroughly also. And, you know, and, and what you would hear was uh, from, you know, the climate activists and from the solar companies that like, you know, every shipment that's seized is slowing down the transition. And every time, you know, the price of solar panels goes up because we can't import these panels from China, uh, you know, that means fewer people are going to put solar panels on their roofs, fewer, fewer uh, utilities are going to install solar farms it's going to take a hit and it, it is a, you know, complicated um, sort of tension. I think, you know, what you'll hear from human rights activists is like, okay, there is a lot of tension here, but you've got to draw a red line somewhere where you're going to say, you know, we understand we have to, uh, you know, make this energy transition happen, but we also have to draw a red line. And they're saying, you know, slave labor is a place where you just obviously can draw a red line. And how do you argue with that? It seems like China is not going to change anytime soon in terms of labor laws, uh, transparency around enforcement of those laws that do exist. Is there a thought of a timeline where we could be making a higher proportion of the key batteries and other products in countries that aren't China? You know, there's so many variables to this. I mean, I think there is a lot of... um, there, there, there's a lot of ground being broken on different kinds of plants in the U.S. and in other countries. Um, you're also seeing sort of neighbors of China that we have better relations with, seeing opportunity here. Um, you know, Indonesia, Vietnam, places like that are are, are really trying to get it in the game. Um, there's questions about whether, uh, you know, the whether they're upholding the ethical standards that, you know, companies say that they abide by and will only buy from, um, but certainly they're, they're not Xinjiang. The other variable is um, the technology is changing. And so there's questions of, you know, do we 
invest in uh, all of this new infrastructure and, and recreate it in the United States? Or do we invest in research and development to try to create batteries that don't use some of these things that we're so reliant on China for and find new uh, chemistries and constructions of these vehicles and the batteries that power them that would be easier to manufacture in the United States. In just our last minute or so, Evan, what are you watching for in this story after this big investigation? I think what we're watching for is how aggressively the administration enforces the uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Are they going to start seizing these shipments? We're seeing more and more evidence that the supply chains are infected by uh, you know, suppliers in, in Xinjiang. And so will the administration clamp down or is this just something they're going to look the other way on? Evan, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate your interest in our investigation. That's Evan Halper, business reporter at The Washington Post covering energy and the energy transition. He talked to us today about his investigation of electric car companies' connections to forced labor in a province in China. We'll get a link to that piece up at WPR.org slash Central Time. Remember, you can visit WPR.org anytime for live streams of us here on the Ideas Network and our Classical Music Network, plus archives of conversations. If you want to share this last conversation with someone you know, you can do that online at WPR.org, or you can download the Wisconsin Public Radio app for live streaming, archives, and news as well. I'm Rob Ferrett. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. You're listening to the Ideas Network. Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Fall weather has arrived in Wisconsin, which means it's a great time to break out the heavy-duty pots and make some chili. Chili is a staple of Midwest cooking in the fall, whether it's white chicken chili, a hearty vegetarian version, or an old-fashioned tomato-based chili con carne with or without beans. It's Food Friday, and our guest has traveled the world to study the history of chili, its ancestors and cousins, and the regional varieties around the United States. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. What's your favorite way to eat chili? In a bowl with cornbread? On a hot dog? Plate of nachos? Do you have a tried-and-true recipe you make every year? And I don't think there's a Wisconsin-style chili, but maybe you disagree. What is Wisconsin-style chili? If so, call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Rob Walsh is an award-winning food writer and the author of a dozen books about food, including The Chili Cookbook. Rob, thanks a lot for joining us today. Great to be here, Rob. Your book is packed with a lot of great recipes, Rob. I love the history, too. Can you talk about the first thing we know about that we would you know, look at in the modern age and say, yeah, I think that meets the, the category of chili? 
Well, you know, it goes way back before the modern age because uh, we we know that Native Americans were uh, stewing venison with uh, with chilies, you know, back before in prehistory, before Columbus. So uh, so chili's been around forever. Now, can you talk about how it became so big? The what we think of as modern chili in the United States. I know there are arguments about who gets credit for the first modern chili, but what were some of the first big hits? Well, it's sort of the big game changer uh, in the Midwest was the uh, the World's Fair, the Columbia Exposition, uh, eighteen ninety three. Is that? I'm pretty sure. I think so. Uh, in Chicago, and uh, what had happened was. Uh, people from all over the country began traveling around on the trains and tourism my, tourism really sort of started in the in the latter part of the 1800s people went to San Antonio and they they discovered the chili queens these colorful women with stalls in the public markets who were selling um, what we call Tex-Mex now what they called Mexican food back then but chili con carne was really at the heart of it um, enchiladas with chili, tortillas with chili. And uh, so when they held the Columbia Exposition, they invited uh, a chili queen stall, a chili stand from San Antonio to set up in the midway of the Columbia Exposition. It was the first time Midwesterners uh, got to see chili outside of Texas, and it just caught fire. There was, there was chili being made in, in St. Louis, and uh, all across the Midwest shortly after that. And in fact, the Mexican uh, pavilion at the, I think it was the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, spawned more uh, chili con carne interest. Uh, a guy named Gebhardt, William Gebhardt, a German immigrant uh, in San Antonio, came up with a chili powder that was, uh, it was pulverized anchos with a little uh, oregano and, and cumin in it. And it made it possible for people all over the country to make chili. Um, so there was just an explosion of interest in chili con carne. Um, tamales were, were also huge. They were much bigger than hamburgers or hot dogs back at the turn of the century, in Chicago in particular. So um, the, the Midwest was just a hotbed of chili con carne, you know, right around the turn of the cent- uh, that last century, the turn of the 20th century. You, Rob, in the book, give uh, equal time to a lot of different regional variations of chili, but you're coming from a a Tex-Mex tradition. If somebody said to you, Rob, I want to make, you know, a kind of Tex-Mex chili that those chili queens might have served up at the World's Fair, what are some of the keys uh, that would have to be part of that? Well, there's a a recipe in the book for El Real Chili Con Carne. That was my Tex-Mex restaurant in Houston, uh, uh, we, COVID did us in, but we were around for about 10 years. And uh, that chili starts with bacon. Uh, we cook bacon down, and we use that bacon as the, uh, the grease that we cook the, uh, the beef in. And uh, then we make our own chili powder by uh, pulverizing the, the anchos and, uh, and grinding them up with the, the oregano and the cumin. Um, much, much bigger flavor than the stuff that's been in a bottle for a long time. Um, but that's really, that's kind of purest chili, if you know what I mean. Um, quite delicious. But, uh, but really, I mean, chili has become pretty easy to make. There's some wonderful chili powders 
on the market uh, from, I mean, all different uh, spice companies now. And, and basically, you know, uh, if, you use, if you use stew meat and, and you, you cut it up fine, that's really spectacular chili con carne. But, you know, ground, meat, ground beef is, is, is fine, too. Um, and the slow cooker, the crock pot, has revolutionized chili because uh, you want to brown the, the meat before you put it in the cooker, as, you know, for food safety reasons, as well as to develop some of those uh, wonderful Maillard reaction caramelized flavors. But if you brown the meat, put it in a crock pot with the, with the chili uh, powder and the, and the liquids, um, let it go for six hours, eight hours, you're going to have a, a wonderful dinner when you get home. It's Food Friday. We're talking to Rob Walsh, author of a bunch of books about food, including The Chili Cookbook. We're talking about great chili recipes, advice for making all manner of different kinds of chilies. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Are you thinking about chili this time of year? Do you have a favorite go-to? People have argued about what is and isn't chili over the year. Do you have a strong opinion when it comes to beans, no beans, tomatoes, no tomatoes, you name it? And hey, this is Wisconsin. I know some of you have made chili with venison. Love to hear your results at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. And Rob, you start off with some uh, older school you know, recipes that might have been how uh, people made chili with venison in uh, Native American, early Native American times. You've got a venison recipe. Can you talk about venison going into our chili? Um, it's it's a wonderful flavor, but you don't want to cook it quite as long because venison doesn't have a lot of fat in it. And uh, leaner meats don't do well on, when they're cooked too long. Um, actually, the other thing that, you know, the Native Americans were cooking besides venison was turkey. I mean, turkey goes back to, uh, to pre-Columbian times as well. And turkey chili is, uh, is pretty fabulous. It's also, uh, you know, people swear by the the healthiness of it. But um, when I put turkey chili out and, and beef chili out, a lot of people can't tell the difference, especially if you use the dark meat turkey. Um, I, you know, I've, I, had some, uh, I had some wonderful uh, uh, chili experiences in, in Detroit eating uh, conies and in Cincinnati, where it turns out that the Cincinnati chili is really a, a Greek dish, Macaronia Mikima, uh, which a Macedonian immigrants brought to Cincinnati. And uh, since everybody called, everybody was eating chili there, they just called their, uh, their home dish uh, chili. But uh, they ate it at home on spaghetti. And uh, so they brought this, uh, this Macaronia Mikima, macaroni being the spaghetti part, um, and the kima being uh, sort of a, a Middle Eastern uh, chili, and uh, so so their their chili, while Texans find it, you know, a real head scratcher that people are putting chili on the spaghetti, uh, it turns out that that is a very old time honored tradition as well. And uh, and uh, I love the uh, I love the Cincinnati chili folk and. Uh, and uh, do, you, do you have any of their uh, any of those uh, Gold Star or uh, any of those other uh, chili chains up in uh, in Wisconsin? I have not seen them, but I did. I actually wanted to key in on something you mentioned there. I grew up in southeastern Michigan. I ate, in hindsight, probably a disturbing number of Coney dogs as a youth with you know, a hot dog with the Coney sauce, chili, uh, mustard, and raw yep. onions on it. Uh, 
If somebody wanted to recreate a favorite childhood memory, say, what is the key to make it a good Detroit-style Coney sauce? Well, I've got a recipe for, for Detroit uh, Coney sauce in, in the chili cookbook. Um, and uh, I've, I've had complaints about it because people from Detroit write to me. and uh, I, I said in the recipe that in Detroit, this is made from beef hearts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've, I've changed the recipe. <laughs> I've changed the recipe to plain old crown meat, and I have people write and say it's better with the beef hearts. So, um, you know, that's my uh, I, I slipped up. I wasn't authentic, but I, you know, well, now uh, current Rob Ferret would probably prefer it your way. Back as a kid, uh, I guess I didn't mind the beef hearts. I, I what I didn't well, know there was, there was you know. not there's nothing wrong with them. I mean, I you know I I, I love awful dishes. Uh, you know, it's a uh, it's not, uh, it's, it's, there's not, you know, I mean, it, it's great stuff. It's just, I mean, part of the reason I changed it was because it's kind of tough to go down to the neighborhood supermarket and get enough beef hearts mm. to make a nice pot of chili. I mean, I guess you can find them, but um, they're, they're not, uh, they're not in the meat counter. Rob Walsh is with us, award-winning food writer and author of a dozen books, including The Chili Cookbook. It's Food Friday. We're talking about chili of all makes and models, including tips on how to up our chili game, make maybe even a prize-winning pot that will have your neighbors asking for the recipe. You could join the fun at 800-642-1234. Any chili fans out there, how do you make your chili stand out at a maybe that potluck? Have you done a cook-off at some point? What's the strangest ingredient you've added to chili or encountered that really worked? Do you have questions about how to make chili? Uh, Any varieties from vegetarian to classic to, I don't know, venison? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Do you have a favorite regional chili that you had? Maybe you're from a place with that chili or you've traveled. 800-642-1234 is the number or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our Food Friday talk with award-winning food writer Rob Walsh. He's the author of The Chili Cookbook, among other things. And we are talking about chili, lots of great varieties and advice. Still time for you to join in at 800-642-1234. What is your favorite variation on chili? San Antonio, Tex-Mex, Cincinnati-style, Coney dogs, beans, no beans. What do you like to eat with your chili, or would you like to put your chili on? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Let's bring on a caller now. Carol is with us in Oconomowoc. Carol, hi. Hi, good afternoon. So, first of all, um, I do make a really good chili. Beans, no pasta. Um, uh, chili has to have cumin. And I do use uh, canned fresh garden tomatoes. Um, so that's important. But the best meat that I've used is elk. Uh, it's hard to come by, but uh, elk is a sweeter meat, and it just makes for an awesome chili. How often are you able to make your elk chili, Carol? Uh, whenever someone, I mean, obviously hunters are mm-hmm. pretty around uh, in Wisconsin, but whenever somebody gets elk, I always beg for a couple of pounds of <laughs> Of meat. Do they, I hope they get some of the chili you make, right, if they're supplying the elk? 
Of course, of course. Carol, thanks a lot for sharing that. Uh, first of all, Rob, uh, chili with elk. I just checked the index that didn't come up in the cookbook. Uh, is that something you've encountered? Um, I I have yet to enjoy elk chili, <laughs> and um, I'm I'm open to uh, I'm open to the experience. So anybody's got some elk chili they want to lay on me, I'm here. Thanks for the call, Carol, at 800-642-1234. Rob, Carol also mentioned a key spice, cumin. I love cumin. I, I have multiple jars of cumin seed that I grind up for just about anything. Why is cumin such an important part of our chili? Uh, cumin is a is a very interesting and, and slightly controversial uh, spice. Diana Kennedy, uh, the, the great uh, guru of Mexican food, said that uh, Tex-Mex uh, used way too much cumin, that, uh, that you should only use a pinch of it in authentic Mexican food. Um, and uh, when, as, I, as I looked into it, um, I realized that part of the reason Tex-Mex has uh, a lot more cumin in it than Mexican food is because the early settlers of San Antonio were from the Canary Islands. Uh, Spain gave a, a land grant to uh, people from the Canary Islands who would come over and populate the city of San Antonio, and they brought with them their traditions, which are a little more in the Arab Berber kind of uh, kind of uh, strain. And uh, they their flavor signature was chilies, garlic, and uh, cumin. And uh, I mean, it's for that reason Tex-Mex has a, a kind of a semblance and a connection to Arab food. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm glad the cumin came along with it because I'm a big fan. <laughs> Let's go back to our callers now. Linda is with us in Milwaukee. Linda, hi. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I have an interesting ingredient for chili that I just love. It's um, dry tart cherries chopped, and it's so good. Well, you start out with chicken broth, and but the, the cherries in there give it this sort of interesting flavor. So I just wanted to add that to it. Linda, thanks a lot for that. Yeah, go ahead, Rob. That sounds, that, that sounds great, Linda. And it's funny, I was going to mention that uh, in the book, there are some, um, some winning chili cook-off recipes. And one of them is called Bob Plager's $25,000 Chili. He, he won a huge prize with this chili. And his secret ingredient is prunes. And he said prunes gave, gave a, the color, the sweetness, and a, a sheen to the, to the finished chili. Not far off of dried cherries. So uh, good, good work there. That's super interesting, Linda. And I wouldn't have, I, I got to say, I would not have thought of putting... I don't think any kind of fruit in chili, Rob. Have you experimented with other fruits to see if you can uh, match that that prune-based chili? Uh, no, I can't say that I. <laughs> I can't say that I have. My probably a lapse in my imagination. <laughs> I, you know, but I'm right there but, with you. Uh, I'm I'm happy with with lots of different kind of chilies personally. Thanks a lot for that call, Linda, at 800-642-1234. We're talking about Chili on Food Friday with Rob Walsh, author of a whole bunch of books, including The Chili Cookbook. Still time for you to join in with your chili favorites or questions at 800-642-1234. Tom is with us now in Glendale. Tom, hello. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to share something and then uh, offer what I'd like to do for my chili 
And that's for about 10 years, our company has actually had a chili cook-off uh, for for the employees, and it is it was a it's a great hit. You get to try a lot of different people's idea of what the best chili is, and it's worked out. Get a little prizes at the end. Uh, it's one of the big things that we do for our our business. But one of the uh, chilies I like to to bring to that event is I use cubed up um, a, a, a cheap cut of steak that's got some fat in it, and then pork as well, and no tomatoes five different kinds of beans and many people can't even tell that that there's no tomatoes in the chili at all and uh it's done well a couple of years I, well done well tom don't leave us hanging did you win yeah <laughs> well first prize actually oh, you didn't want to yeah, brag first cool prize. Ah, well, congratulations, Tom. Thanks a lot for sharing that. Okay, a lot there, Rob. One thing uh, he mentioned, uh, cubing up uh, the, the steak and the beef in there. What? How do we make the decision between whether we cube it or pull it or, or use ground meat? Uh, what are the considerations there? Well, <clears throat> in Texas, we, we have a, a grind called chili grind that you find in the, in the meat case. It's basically ground meat, but with a half inch die on the meat grinder so if if by any chance you're grinding your own meat uh you'll find that at the shop any shop where they sell meat grinders along with those fine die that you can get to to make the usual sort of ground meat you can find a i think it's a half inch die and uh you put that on your meat grinder and it it grinds it in big chunks which saves you the the uh intensive labor of cutting uh, all that meat up uh, into little bits yourself. But if you do that, uh, I think it was Wick Fowler, the the famous chili maker, who said, cut the meat into pieces the size of the last joint of your little finger. So there's a tip. All right. Interesting. And then uh, five different beans in Tom's recipe. What are when we use beans in chili? What are some of the usual go to's uh, or, or do you like to experiment with a different mix of beans? Um, so I as I said, I had a Tex-Mex restaurant for many years. We made, you know, gallons upon gallons of chili every day. Um, we didn't we don't put we didn't put beans in it because mm-hmm. in a Tex-Mex restaurant, the chili is sort of the mother sauce. I mean, you put chili on tamales, you put chili on, like you said, on on hot dogs, you know, and you don't want beans in the chili if you're going to put it on a hot dog. I mean, you're from from Michigan. I mean, is that, am I, am I speaking the truth here? You know, I did it once. I used canned chili with beans on a hot dog. It was weird. I regretted that decision. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, so the thing is, um, the chili sort of evolved into this one-pot meal for most people who make chili. They want to make a pot of chili and then put it in a bowl, and that's dinner, um, which is great. That's fine. But, you know, if you're, if you're a Tex-Mex restaurant, you need, the chili, you need to use the chili on the enchiladas. You need to use it on the tamales. You need to use it on all different things. Now, you know, you could get a bowl of chili and, and some beans and, and, and mix them together because they're both, you know, obviously there in a Tex-Mex restaurant. It's just that there's many other starches or, uh, you know, other dishes that, that you want to use the chili for. And that's why you don't put beans in it, not because they don't taste good, but because it's more practical. The other thing is uh, that 
most people should should be aware of is if you're going to put beans in the chili, put them in in the last half hour. Especially, I mean, I, I'm talking about canned beans here. Um, if if you're using canned beans and chili, if you put them in at the beginning, they're just going to dissolve. They're going to turn to mush. Um, if you want if you want your beans to be intact, then you need to put them in towards the end. Rob, we'll leave it there. Thanks for sharing this great advice with us. Hey, it's been my pleasure. That's Rob Walsh, award-winning food writer and author of a dozen books, including the relevant one today, The Chili Cookbook. He joined us for a Food Friday conversation about chili variations from around the country and around the world and how you can take your own chili recipes to the next level. Still time for you to share your chili favorites over on the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org, maybe with a recipe. Coming up Monday on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, a group of election experts has a 24-point plan to safeguard the voting process in 2024. A Wisconsin co-author joins the show for a look at those recommendations Monday morning at 7.30 here on the Ideas Network. It's always exciting when a new song or album drops from your favorite artist. Sometimes it comes with a lot of advanced publicity. Sometimes it's a surprise. In at least one case, it brings important messages about consumer safety. The Federal Consumer Product Safety Commission just released a new album. It's an EP titled, We're Safety Now, Haven't We? Volume 1. According to the Safety Commission, the songs are aimed at 13 to 24-year-olds and target common safety hazards. Messages include wearing helmets while riding bikes, firework safety and smoke alarms, and a favorite of mine, warnings about the hazards of walking and other activities while staring at your phone. The artists are officially anonymous. We'll see if we can name names at some point. Gotta say, these songs are way cooler than the safety-related songs I remember from my own youth. This one fading up here is called Phone Away, and it's WPR debut. This is Central Time.